This is the I Make a Living podcast brought to you by FreshBooks. If you're new to the podcast, FreshBooks is an accounting software that makes running your small business easy, fast, and secure. So you can spend less time on accounting and more time doing the work you love. A personal share here. I'm not that organized and I hate managing my books. I once spent eight hours putting together my expense report for a freelance project. I know. How embarrassing. But what's worse, those were eight unbillable hours that I wasn't spending on my business. And I don't want that to happen to you. FreshBooks was my solution. And now I have an easy time logging receipts, billing expenses, and so much more. If you can relate to my frustration of managing the books, you should check out FreshBooks and see how it can help you too. We have a special link just for podcast listeners to try it free for two months at freshbooks.com slash I-M-A-L, short for I Make a Living. And yeah, you guessed it, that's a limited time offer. So don't procrastinate on this one like I did on managing those old receipts. We'll put the link in the show notes to make it super easy for you to get your business finances on track at freshbooks.com slash I-M-A-L. I'm your host, Demona Hoffman, and I'm one of you, an entrepreneur who is proud of my heritage. In honor of Black History Month, we're celebrating an amazing Black woman, someone who not only carved her own path in business, leading her to be named to Forbes 30 Under 30 list and sell her company to Amazon, but someone who also keeps paving the way for other entrepreneurs of color as the head of Google for startups in the U.S. today. She is an independent thinker. She's an innovator. She's the one and only Jewel Burks Solomon. And here she is talking about PartPick, the company that put her on the map as an entrepreneur and also got her into the White House to meet with Barack Obama during his presidential term. PartPick is the company that I founded in 2013, and it really came out of a problem. I was working in the manufacturing industry. Uh, working at a company that sold parts. And I was managing in a call center and I was the person who got all the escalations when we had upset customers who had not received their part on time or gotten the right part. And I I got tired of getting yelled at, honestly. (laughs) And so I started to think about what would be a better way for me to help these customers. And at the same time, uh, my grandfather called me looking for a part He has a farm in Repton, Alabama, and his tractor broke down in the middle of of the harvest. And so I was trying to help him find a part. I was listening to these customers trying to find parts. And one day I kind of just had this light bulb moment. And it was, what if I could help people find parts just with an image? So a lot of times they would have uh, the part that they wanted to replace and not know what it was called or have a part number for it. And so I started thinking about what if I could apply kind of visual recognition technology to this problem. And that's really how PartPick was born. So I started doing a lot of research, um, decided that I wanted to pursue it full time, started to put together a team and ultimately built out some really cool technology to allow folks to search for parts just with an image. This was born out of you saw a need with the customers. You said you're tired of getting yelled at. <laughs> you know, the, the customers like couldn't explain what they're looking for. So you created this technology really to serve a need. But it's not always easy to get investments in new in in a startup when I mean you're 
what, 20 something years old and you hadn't, had you had a business before? Not really. No, this is my first, definitely my first technology business. Um, I used to sell paintings in high school. I don't know if that really counts as a business, but yeah, sales, this was, <laughs> sales experience. Yeah, sales experience for sure. Um, but no, this was my first tech company. And so, yeah, it was definitely challenging to get people to understand the vision, particularly because I was coming at it from uh, not really having a deep tech background. Uh, I started my career at Google, so I did have some experience in the tech industry, but I didn't know how to build computer vision algorithms. So it was really important for me to build a great team around the idea that could help me actually build this technology. Um, but we had to bootstrap for quite some time while we got the technology to work, while we got our first few customers. Um, so it, it definitely wasn't kind of off the bat fundraising. It was really about how do we build out a proof of concept, um, original sort of technology, and then go out and find people that can help us scale. Okay. So let's break that down because there's there's a big gap between bootstrapping and just launching your business on your own. And then eventually you ended up with a $2 million seed round. What do you think was the difference for you? Because I know there's a lot of entrepreneurs listening that are like, I could use $2 million. Was it just that your product was that good? Or did you do something else to be able to catch the attention of investors and and get that first $2 million? The first thing I would say is you have to invest in yourself first. So when I was still working, I was saving up money so that I could fund kind of the first prototype and um, bring people on. Even though I wasn't able to pay them a ton, I was able to save up enough to pay them so that we could kind of get something that was usable and that I could take to initial customers. Um, So that was the first step for me was one, doing enough planning in advance that I had enough money to feel comfortable jumping and quitting my full-time job and pursuing part pick. Um, And then it was really finding the people who had the right skill set to help me build it and who were motivated enough by the idea that they were willing to work on it for much less than, you know, their their typical rate. Um, and then it was figuring out ways to get in front of investors because I didn't really have a network um, in the investment community at the time. You know, I was pretty young. And even though I lived in Silicon Valley, I, I didn't have a, a huge network. So I had to find creative ways to get in front of people who could invest in my idea. And initially it was, the first few investors were people who knew me, um, but outside of two family friends, um, those were the only folks that I knew in my immediate network who had the capital to invest. And then outside of that, obviously that got me nowhere close to 2 million. So I had to get creative as far as how would I get in front of people who I did not know and quickly prove to them that I had something that was worth their investment. You did end up getting the attention of some really big, big people to fund you. AOL co-founder Steve Case, Comcast Ventures. How did you catch their attention? So I really leveraged pitch competitions to get in front of investors. So the way that I ended up meeting Steve Case was through his pitch competition, Rise of the Rest, where they kind of go around to emerging markets outside of Silicon Valley and run a pitch competition for local startups. And so they came to Atlanta 
they did a competition and I won. And so the prize was a $100,000 investment from Steve Case and kind of the Rise of the Rest Fund. And that was awesome. Um, Steve Case has been an incredible supporter. He is the reason I got to go to the White House and meet President Obama and show him what we were working on at Part Pig. So, um, and he also included me in his his book. So that was really awesome. Um, but yeah, I, I, def- I definitely used pitch competitions and then following up after pitch competitions because a lot of times the judges were investors. So I would meet them at the competition and then um, reach out to them afterwards. And a lot of times, you know, in the early competitions I did, I wasn't really ready for investment, but I stayed in touch with them, gave them updates every few months, letting them know that I was still working on it and how things were progressing. And that really was a way that I met a lot of the investors that ultimately um, decided to join us. That is so key, Jewel, to be able to network and keep in touch with the people that you met and really build a relationship with them. I think that's sometimes what people miss with networking. They want to just like make the contact and you have to sort of nurture the contact. But what if you don't have the contacts. Like you met them through the pitch competitions, which is great. But you know, this is our Black History Month episode. I know a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs of color don't have the same networks that entrepreneurs of uh, that white male entrepreneurs might have. How can you begin building that network beyond the path that you? told us about. Make a target list of the people you want to meet and you think will be helpful in your business and figure out where they're going to be and not saying stalk them, but really show up and ask questions and be engaged and be helpful where you can. So for example, um, there are a few people who I really thought would be great investors for my business or even just advisors to me. And I kind of wrote a list and, and I looked into where they would be speaking and I went to those events and I would engage with them. And so they saw me multiple times over the course of just say a year. And finally, they're kind of like, okay, so what are you doing? What are you working on? Um, just because they noticed that I was consistently showing up, asking good questions, um, trying to add value to whatever they're working on when I could. And for me, that was that was one of the ways that I was able to get uh, Comcast Ventures as an investor I met William Crowder, who was at at the time at Comcast running the Catalyst Fund. And I saw him several times over the course of two years before he they actually ended up investing. But it was me being consistent and kind of building that relationship that ultimately um, convinced him that we I was an entrepreneur worth investing in. So just low-key stalk people. (laughs) I saw this firsthand as a former TV executive and producer. People often want you to buy into their project when they haven't created any tangible elements of it yet. Before Jewel pitched her idea, she invested her own time and money to create the physical product. So she wasn't asking people to contribute to a concept. She could show investors exactly how it worked and what made it so special. And she could update them on new developments as her product evolved. Jewel wasn't hoping people would just invest in her business idea. She was getting supporters on board with a solid product and an experienced team. 
you know, if you give people something to latch on to and to see like, wow, okay, you, I, I met you six months ago and now you're doing this great thing. That is something that attracts people to you. So I think at a certain point, people decided that they wanted to support me because they saw that I was actually working and making good progress and that I was creating something of value. Well, you've continued to make progress since then, and your company was acquired by Amazon in 2016. That is that is the dream for so many of our listeners, to grow your business to the point of, of being acquired by somebody as big as Amazon. But I bet you there are some challenges that come with taking this this idea that you have nurtured and grown and then sort of handing it over to a big company like that. What were some of the unexpected challenges that you encountered during that process? The decision to sell your business is a huge decision. For me, I think it's outside of who I was going to marry. It's probably one of the biggest decisions I've made in my life. So um, I know that... what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we were still pretty early in the, the life of the company. And I had a bigger vision as far as how I wanted to grow the business, but I was very realistic about kind of what was happening in the industry, um, the amount of money I would need to raise to be able to grow the business out to the point that I wanted it to be. And honestly, the reality of not having um, an easy time in that fundraising experience, not feeling like I was getting a fair shake from investors. Um, So the decision to sell was really kind of a response to the the reality of some of the hardships I was facing in building the business. Jewel, do you think that that was because of being a woman of color? I definitely think that was a a factor for sure. Um, And I say that because people were pretty explicit about it in some ways. Um, I think there was a lot of doubt about my ability to grow the business in the industries that I was playing in. So you have to imagine, now I was building a computer vision company in the industrial parts space. So two extremely white male dominated spaces. And um, some investors felt like it, it would be too difficult for me to sell to the customers that I was pursuing um, because they wouldn't take me as at the time, you know, a 26 year old black woman seriously. So that was a concern of some investors. And I think there was also um, a disbelief that we had built this incredible technology. And it was really us selling to Amazon that made people realize like, oh, this is something that actually works very well. And um, you know, was a value to Amazon. So it was kind of funny, the reaction and responses that I got after the sale, because it's people that didn't necessarily believe um, what we built before. Hmm. Yeah. I've heard that from some other entrepreneurs that are, I make a living live events that, you know, they create something great and people think that they licensed the technology or, you know, had someone else build it for them, but you were really doing it yourself and you really understood the technology. So when Amazon acquired you, acquired your company, it wasn't just the product, right? They were also sort of acquiring your knowledge and keeping you on throughout the transition. That's right. So we had a team and it it wasn't just me. So we had 14 employees at the time of the sale. And I have to give a a big shout out to Dr. Nashley Cephas, who was our CTO at PartPick and was really kind of the mastermind behind the algorithms that we built. 
um, and, and now is leading at Amazon, um, working on bias in AI and making sure that they're the algorithms that, you know, detect our faces and all this um, are not biased against folks that maybe weren't included when they were built. So um, we had a really dynamic and super brilliant team and Amazon saw the value in our team as well and kind of brought the whole team on to work on um, not only the part pick technology, but also other visual recognition applications as well. Wow, that is really impressive. And you've just continued growing and continued building. You have a new role now as the head of Google for Startups. What is Google for Startups and what's your what's your role there? And what are you hoping to achieve? Google for Startups is Google's effort to bring the best of Google to um, startup founders everywhere and really level the playing field for startups. Um, so my job is to lead the effort in the United States. The team is global. So there are heads of um, many different countries, but it's new for us to have a head of the U.S. So I'm super excited to be the first person in this role and really leading around leveling the playing field and particularly focused on helping Black and Latinx founders in emerging markets um, with our first focus being in Atlanta where I'm based. That's wonderful. I'm so, I am so pumped for that. And I think it's also fantastic that you have decided to stay in in an emerging market state in Atlanta, which, you know, you think tech and you think Silicon Valley. And I know you started out there at Google, but you decided to come back to, you know, you're from Nashville, but to come back to Atlanta and come to a different market where there was a different talent base in order to launch your company. I'm sure a lot of people thought that was crazy. There's so much talent in Silicon Valley. Why would you launch a a tech business in Atlanta. Yes, I did get that a lot. If I got feedback in investor conversations, I would keep the a spreadsheet that that listed what was the feedback. And a lot of people say that um, us being based in Atlanta was a negative for them because a lot of times seed stage investors want to be close to the companies that they're investing in, or at least at the time, that was sort of a big thing. And so, um, but for me, I knew... For my business, it made sense for us to be in Atlanta because we had this amazing talent pool to pull from out of Georgia Tech and, and the other universities in, in the city. Um, our customers, a lot of the customers that we were selling into are based in the South and in the Midwest and not in Silicon Valley. So we needed to be close to our customers. And um, for me personally, I just wanted to be close to my family and close to home. And so it always made sense for, for me to stay in Atlanta and build a business in Atlanta. In the last five years, tech giants of Silicon Valley have made efforts to diversify. However, despite the push for change, the tech workforce is still largely made up of white and Asian men, according to diversity reports released by Apple, Facebook, Google, and Microsoft. Perhaps this industry lacks diversity because these companies are so closely situated within the same region and are competing for the same talent. But Jewel put her money where her mouth is and launched her company with a fresh and diverse talent pool. And she will continue to grow Google for startups from her home base of Atlanta. Sometimes we we think as entrepreneurs about the business we're building, but it's really so much bigger than that when you're creating opportunities for other people to work in an environment that, that you've created. Yes. 
I think that's one of the things I'm most proud of, of my career so far, is that I was very adamant about staying in Atlanta, cultivating talent here, um, hiring folks who may or may not have been given a chance in other settings um, and getting them to a place where now they're leading in a company like an Amazon and able to go on and do amazing things. That to me is kind of the best part of my journey so far is being able to give folks opportunities and see kind of what they've done with those opportunities. And they've done amazing things. Well, you've been in this industry for, for a while now, and it must've been interesting starting at Google. And then after many years, after after launching your business to now come back to Google and head up Google for startups. What has changed in that in that length of time? Yeah, so it is it does feel kind of like a full circle moment because I started in 2009 as an intern. Um so, you know, over 10 years ago and now coming back, it's really incredible to be in this role doing something that I'm so passionate about. And that I really have the experience of the founder. I have a lot of empathy towards founders. So I I know what they're going through because I just went through it as a founder myself. And so I'm able to kind of guide and direct, making sure that we're bringing the best offerings to founders and that we're doing events that are really meaningful to founders. Um, And so I'm, I'm just super excited about this work and the team that we're building to do this work is also incredible. So it's, it's, it's really, really meaningful to me. And a lot of things have changed. I mean, if you think about just the growth of Google as a company over the last 10 years, it's, it's definitely a very different place. Um, But I, to me, I'm very encouraged by the fact that they brought me on in this role, um, decided to make the investment in Atlanta for me to to be in Atlanta and be focused um, this year and kind of building out a model in Atlanta that we can take across the country. So I'm just, I'm, I'm super excited about it. Um, I'm also curious what's next for you. Outside of your role at Google, where do you want to go as an entrepreneur when you look to the future? Yeah, so I mentioned Collab Capital. That's really kind of both my passion project and where I want to go. I have a big vision about how entrepreneurship can be um, really a difference maker in communities that are historically um, struggling. And, you know, we think, I think a lot about the wealth gap in the United States. And I think about how um, entrepreneurship in my life made a huge difference and kind of changed the trajectory of me and my family because of what I was able to do with with the acquisition of my business and how the same thing can be true for many other people if they understand how to do it and have access to the right networks and have access to the early stage capital that they need. And so pretty much everything that I'm doing right now is revolving around how to unlock the networks that um, have honestly just been locked up for so long and then how to find entrepreneurs to help them um, change the trajectory of their families and really kind of continue to sow seeds in their communities. Mm, that's wonderful. I'm really glad to hear that. I'm also curious, Jewel, about your role models. When you were growing up, did you, were there any, any especially like thinking about going into entrepreneurship, were there any role models that you had? Were there any people of color that you could look to or other entrepreneurs that just inspired you to know you could do this? Yeah, I 
I was very, very lucky that I grew up with my role models. So I watched my mom grow a business from the time I was around seven or eight to now. Um, she's She has an insurance agency and she's like one of the top agents in the country um, with that. And now she's this, this over the last six months, we've together launched a few new businesses in Nashville. Um, so, you know, she's been like my biggest inspiration and role model in business and in life, just kind of watching her throughout her life. She, she had me pretty young. I noted already that she's 50. So watching her as kind of a young mother, still very ambitious and building businesses was a huge inspiration for me early on. And then also I watched my dad. Um, he was also an entrepreneur. My grandfather started businesses and passed them to my dad. And so I was working in my dad's businesses, my grandfather's businesses pretty early in life as well. So I always tell people I got this entrepreneurship thing honest because I really, everyone in my family pretty much has built businesses and to varying degrees of success, but all of it has taught me a ton. Um, and I'll say also, you know, I, I grew up in a church environment where a lot of the folks that I would see on Sundays were successful in various business ventures. So I kind of had that inspiration growing up as well. Yeah, it's great that you had role models very close to you in your life. And, you know, really, we say representation really matters. So the fact that you're out here now being a role model for others and demonstrating that other entrepreneurs of color can do what you've done, it's really a beautiful thing. And I think we're going to see that um, that market of, of black and brown entrepreneurs really grow under your your leadership. I hope so. Well, I'm excited about it too, hearing you talk about it. I'm like, I got to get in on this. And I know a lot of our listeners, they're also founders and thinking, I got to get in on this too. And many of them have submitted their questions to us for our next segment. So I hope you could answer some of their specific questions for them. you as somebody with an entrepreneurial spirit and lens and approach to the world decide what is your passion project that you're going to go all in on? That's a great question. So for me, my passion project is deeply aligned to all the work I do related to um, helping startups and growing businesses. But I would say right now, what I'm super passionate about is uh, the fund that I'm launching. It's called Collab Capital. And we are focused on investing in Black entrepreneurs across the country um, in a way that is quite different than the traditional venture model. So we're looking at how can we best align the interests of us as the investors with the entrepreneur and provide optionality, which is something that a lot of entrepreneurs who pursue venture don't necessarily have. Kind of once you go down a, a venture path, you are making a decision that you want to be a multi-billion dollar business. And that's great, but sometimes every business isn't meant to be a multi-billion dollar business. And so um, we're, we've created a model that is better fit for businesses that don't quite know yet what they want to be. Um, and we give them the chance to figure it out and to decide throughout the course of building the business. I want to just clarify, when you are building a multi-million dollar business or more, 
What are some of those challenges or like, what are some ways that the business grows that you're not expecting? What are those unexpected roadblocks? Because obviously you have a multi-million dollar business, you have multi-million dollar problems. (laughs) Yes. So I think the biggest thing in building a business that's a challenge is the team, building the right team around it, um, making sure that you're not bringing in, you know, too many senior level folks too soon and not enough people to actually do the the dirty work, if you will. Um, I, I see starters making this mistake a lot where they build out an executive team. They have chief this, chief that, chief this before they really have a product or really have uh, money to manage. And, you know, they already have a CFO, there's for no example. One, yeah, there's no one to build it, <laughs> yes. right? And then, yeah, right. And then have no one to build it. So I think that's one of the things I really caution people around is just making sure that you have the only the essentials first. And in a startup, you need someone to build the thing, to sell the thing and to design the thing. Um, those are kind of like the key elements mostly. And so making sure you have those three um, taken care of first before you kind of start adding on layers that may not be essential at the earliest stages. Excellent. Okay, this one comes to us from a Howard alum as well, who's pretty excited to see that you went to Howard. I'm a fellow entrepreneur, also a graduate of Howard University, HU. And my question for you is I'm also an author and an educator. I teach at Cal State Fullerton. As an entrepreneur color, what would be the message you would share with people who are entering into this industry now and want to follow in your footsteps? The best advice I can give if you want to follow in my footsteps um, is just to focus on your business. So I think a lot of times folks get wrapped up in some of the external things that don't really matter and are not going to make your business any money. Um, So it's great to get press. You know, you mentioned the Forbes 30 under 30. That's nice. It's awesome. But at the end of the day, the thing that matters is, are you providing a value to customers and are they going to pay you for it? Um, And making sure that you stay focused on that and whatever kind of North Star metric drives your business, that is the important part. And not to get too bogged down in all of the the things that kind of look like entrepreneurship, but maybe aren't really driving your business forward. So true. You know, Jewel, I heard a little um, something in your voice when you said, if you want to follow in my footsteps, um, I don't know if it was like disbelief or something like you don't really know what my footsteps are, but there was something in your voice that made me feel like there was something more to the story that you wanted to tell. Yeah, that's funny that you picked up on that. Um, I think a lot of people may look at me and and see headlines or see kind of the roles that I've been able to have and not really understand all the things that have gone into it. And I will say it's been, you know, over the last 10 years, of my career, it's been certainly a difficult journey. So uh, I talk a lot about, you know, the the hard times as well as the good times. It's, it's, you have to kind of, if you want to follow my footsteps, you have to be able to endure it all. And so I, yeah, if someone says they want to follow my footsteps, I want to sit them down and talk to them about the fact that it's been a lot of hard times um, that they may not be aware of. And so um, it's important to not just 
you know, celebrate the successes, but know that there are, there are struggles as well. And for me, it's, it's definitely been kind of like a roller coaster. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful for it all because I think that even the difficult things have made me a lot stronger and made me better equipped to handle the, to handle it all. Um, but I, I think it's important to note that it's not all, you know, cherries and roses. It's sometimes difficult as well. You know, people are looking at, all the things that worked out, they're not always aware of the things that didn't work out or the hard work that you put in. Just the feeling of selling my company, it was, I mentioned it was a very hard decision, but it's actually um, in practice a, a very difficult experience. And it kind of led me into a depression, actually. My experience with the person that I was negotiating with at the acquiring company was challenging. Um, from the perspective of just very adversarial kind of conversations. And um, so it, it kind of felt like a three plus year period of, of just fighting to get the basic things that I knew we deserved. Um, so that was unpleasant and hard. For entrepreneurs, especially for those who identify as minorities, we don't often discuss how our businesses and our mental health are intertwined. As a woman of color and someone who works in the coaching and wellness field, I find it important that Jewel was able to open up about this and to destigmatize depression. From the outside, it does it does all look really glamorous, but you're really in the trenches doing the hard work. Uh, that leads me into our next question from a, an entrepreneur who is doing the hard work and who is juggling multiple clients that all have deadlines and expectations. What are the best practices for setting your own deadlines and also setting their clients to have yeah, expectations of you know when things are going to be delivered? So how do you, again, manage their expectations and kind of like save face and get the right ones done? Um, I think you just you just do it. So you have to be honest and communicative with your clients and let them know um, if you're delayed or give them realistic um, expectations as far as when you're going to be able to deliver whatever it is that you are guaranteeing to deliver. And it's very easy. And I made this mistake in the when I was um, running part pick and managing clients and wanting to get them product really fast, but knowing that there was going to be, um, you know, development needed, you have to be honest and actually give yourself a bit of a buffer because things always take longer, especially if you're dealing with um, having to develop something. And, and in our case, we were developing algorithms. So it definitely always took a little bit longer than we expected. Um, but you, you have to be able to communicate that to customers. And I think people typically, they are willing to work with you if, particularly if you're in an early stage and they know that, um, but you just have to be honest and make sure that you're able to hold up whatever deadlines you committed to. I think for a lot of our listeners, many are in like creative or service-based businesses where, you know, they're doing the same kind of work for all of the clients and they, but they have different deadlines. And even in my business, I know sometimes you want to say yes to everybody and to everything, but then it gets challenging 
when you realize you've promised something to three people at the same time and you just think there's only so many hours in the day. How thin can you spread yourself? So there's something I think in being able to probably organize and manage your time too, to be able to deliver and and know what you can say yes to when. That's right. And no is your friend also. It's, it's, it's okay to say no. I think a lot of times entrepreneurs, we want to be able to say yes. It's kind of like how we're wired, but it's good to say no when you can't deliver. It's better to go ahead and just say no than to overpromise and then disappoint someone. So yeah, that makes me, <laughs> I totally agree with you. It makes me think of that Shonda Rhimes book, A Year of Yes. Yes. I completely didn't understand it because <laughs> all I have, that's all I have is a year of yes. I was like, I need a year of no. no yes. <laughs> Agreed. That actually, that actually leads really well into our final question. I've read maybe, I don't know, a thousand books in the last five years. That's not even an understatement. Like, I read a lot. Um, most of them are by male authors. Anything in business, anything in development. Um, it's very different being a female entrepreneur, uh, especially when you have kids. What do you think um, a lot of female entrepreneurs don't get uh, from these books because they're not really written for us? Uh, my favorite book that I go back to often is The Four Agreements. And it's not really a business book, but it's one that helps you determine kind of how you're going to manage it all and live your life in a way that is productive and good. And one of the agreements that I think about a lot is not taking anything personally. And for particularly for women of color, there is something to that agreement because a lot of times it's easy to take things personally. Um, but you have to recognize that when you're in your business, it's not personal. And it might feel personal because you are really invested in what you're doing. But as it relates to how you interact with other people, I think that book gives really interesting perspective on the fact that typically what people put onto you is really has nothing to do with you. It's about what they're going through that, you know, you know, you may not know anything about. So I really like that book as uh, good reminders as far as interacting and having relationships with people. Last question before we go today, we always ask our guests about their favorite tips or tools that they have been given or that they use on a daily basis to make their lives as entrepreneurs more livable. What's your favorite tip or tool to share? Biggest thing that has been a difference maker for me within the last few weeks, actually, is turning off notifications on my phone. And this came out of a mindfulness workshop that I did, um, that I was a part of recently. And it was, this has been a huge thing for me because with me taking on this new role at Google, I was getting so much inbound requests and ask, and my phone was just ringing and messages going off the hook. Um, and it was kind of giving me anxiety. So I realized, and through this workshop, I realized that I could just adjust my notifications and settings so that I have, you know, I still get emails and still get everything on my phone, but it's not constantly interrupting me throughout the day. And it you know, in a way that was kind of keeping me from getting the things done that I need to get done. So for folks out there who feel overwhelmed and, you know, like their phone is constantly yelling at them, you just a quick reminder that you can adjust your notifications so that you're not constantly getting interrupted throughout your day and that you're able to focus on the things that matter. 
I'm just really excited to see what comes what comes next for you and what magic you're able to create with Google for Startups. So I wish you lots of luck on the next phase of your career. And I thank you so much for sharing your insights with our audience. Thank you. This was awesome. Thank you so much. One of my biggest heroes, Maya Angelou said, if one is lucky, a solitary fantasy can transform one million realities. Jewel's dream is transforming so many realities for new innovators and entrepreneurship. And I can't wait to see what Google for Startups does under her leadership. Here are a few big takeaways from Jewel's story. Don't wait for people to believe in your idea and fund it. If you build it and it's good, they will come. Be smart about networking. Put your ideas in front of the right people and nurture relationships with them. Selling your company is not always the fantasy it's made out to be. Map out what your life would be like after you're acquired and see if that's really what you want. Surround yourself with other people who are doing the kind of work you want to be doing and who will inspire you to keep going. And most of all, don't let your story, the place you live in, or the color of your skin define what's possible for you. In honor of Black History Month, I thank Jewel and the many Black entrepreneurs who have paved the way for other innovators to be brilliant and brave. Our audio engineer and composer is James Morris. Paco Arismendi is our producer and director, and I'm Debona Hoffman, host and producer of I Make a Living. If you want to chat with me about coaching, about business, about diversity, or anything else, you can find me at Demona Hoffman or at DemonaHoffman.com. Also, come meet me and the team at one of our I Make a Living live events. You can go to iMakeAliving.com to see when we'll be in a city near you. And remember to network like a pro because it's your business. March is Women's History Month, and you know we have some amazing female entrepreneurs sharing their stories. So, see you next week.